Since the middle of September, the number of coronavirus cases in the U.S. and across the world has steadily increased. We're still in the midst of this new surge, and by some metrics, it's the worst surge of the whole pandemic. Right now, the U.S. is averaging well over 100,000 new cases per day, roughly a 150% increase compared to September. During the same time, hospitalization roughly doubled, according to the New York Times. Those numbers are causing many scientists to fear a brutal winter, with even more people falling ill. There is some good news, though. The number of people dying from COVID-19 peaked in April and has come down significantly since then, possibly because of better medical treatments. The progress on vaccine development is also a reason for celebration. In November, two groups announced promising early results that suggest a vaccine may be very effective. Both the Pfizer-BioNTech team and the drug company Moderna say their vaccines are about 90% effective based on preliminary analyses. We should note that these data come from a news release rather than a peer-reviewed document. We'll need more evaluation to be sure that these vaccines are safe and effective, but it's a promising start. The incoming Biden administration could also have a big impact on the country's response to the virus. So far, the Trump administration has downplayed the severity of the virus and failed to develop a coordinated national plan. Biden has promised swift action based on science. Unfortunately, a vaccine probably won't be available for a while, and when it is, the main challenge will be to distribute it rapidly and equitably. Until then, the most important steps still are those that cut down on person-to-person spread, and those steps will mostly depend on the actions of state and local governments. Some leaders have already taken action. In October, the county of El Paso ordered citizens to stay at home for two weeks. In November, the city of Denver instituted a curfew to try and slow the spread. Other leaders have been slower to act. For instance, South Dakota still maintains no mask mandate in spite of having among the highest case positivity rates in the country. The governor of Tennessee also continues to oppose a mask mandate, even though cases there are spiking. On this episode of Big Biology, we ask a panel of scientists and politicians how to navigate the difficult road ahead. This conversation was recorded live at Bush Gardens in Tampa, Florida, and streamed on Facebook in partnership with the University of South Florida College of Public Health and the Morsani College of Medicine. We recorded this conversation on October 15th, before the recent announcements about vaccine effectiveness. That day, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention recorded 63,000 new coronavirus cases in the U.S. A month later, the CDC recorded more than 130,000. The conversation features Jane Castor, mayor of Tampa. You know, individuals have to have confidence that you are relying on science. Kami Kim, a physician and professor who concentrates on infectious diseases and international medicine. COVID is very unpredictable, and many of the things that we thought we knew don't necessarily apply to COVID. Edwin Michael, an epidemiologist specializing in population ecology of disease transmission. You know, how do we address the social inequalities in our communities? And Michael Tang, an immunologist with expertise in vaccine development. The genome of the SARS-CoV-2 is very similar to some of the, the bat coronaviruses. Art and I served as moderators. There was no audience, and the few people involved in the event wore masks and were distanced the entire time. We asked our scientist guests about the state of the pandemic, progress on treatments, and the race for a vaccine. And we talked with Mayor Castor about the challenge of translating advice into public policy, especially when the Florida governor and the president think differently about the pandemic. Her answers focus on Tampa's response to the virus, but most of her ideas apply broadly to other metro areas. I'm Art Woods. And I'm Marty Martin. You're listening to Big Biology. So let's get to it. Mayor Castor, the first question, 
What do you see the long-term effect, long effects of COVID-19 being in Tampa, in Florida, and the nation generally? Well, I think the, um, the effects on us locally uh, will be economic. You know, I can't speak to the medical effects, but uh, economically, we are going to be hit. I believe we're at the tip of the iceberg right now. Um, individuals have a number of relief programs, in, including the CARES funding that Hillsborough County received locally and has been distributed nationwide. Uh, we did a number of relief or uh, relief programs with money that we brought together, just under $8 million for relief on uh, mortgage, uh, rent, and utilities for individuals and for small businesses. But there are a lot of small businesses that are going to go out of business. And so we're doing everything that we can to help them avoid that. Also, uh, individuals being evicted. There's a moratorium on evictions, and that's something that's going to come as well. We're focusing on workforce uh, development and workforce retraining, getting individuals specifically in the hospitality industry. We're here at Bush Gardens. Bush Gardens had to lay off uh, a number of, of their team members. And so we're trying to get individuals retrained and back into jobs as quickly as we possibly can. But we are not unlike any other city, county, state in the nation. Uh, this is something that everyone is going to be affected by and going to be affected uh, in the long term. But we are working in concert here in our community and looking for innovative uh, ideas and ways that we can continue to lift our community up. In, in the shorter term, it looks like the cases are on the rise in the region. Are there particular yes. steps that are being taken right now expecting? Yes, we again, with the working relationships, uh, governmental, we work very closely, and then in the, the medical community as well. You know, a lot of our, our uh, premier uh, hospitals are usually uh, competitors, and they have all come together with USF Medical to do everything that we can to look for um, not only uh, vaccines, but uh, the treatment for uh, COVID-19. But we are seeing another resurgence nationwide, which I'm sure the doctors can uh, speak to much better than I could. But we are also seeing a rise in the cases locally. One of the things that, that I pushed back on was the opening of the bars the first time they were open, I felt that the CARES funding should have been used to subsidize bars so they didn't go out of business. But uh, we saw a, a huge spike then, and now with the opening of schools and then the reopening of bars and, and other factors, those aren't the only ones, but we are seeing a gradual rise. I don't know that we will see the rise that other states will see, but um, we have to ensure that we're paying attention to it and that we continue to get that word out to take those simple steps, wearing a mask, distance separation, washing your hands, the simple things that can keep the number of COVID-19 cases to a, a minimum in our community. Mayor Kastner, can I, can I ask, if, um, since we're seeing this rise, is there, are there plans to enhance testing? I know that you know, the governor has done some antigen tests or he's been sending those out, but you know, we're going to need some sort of um, mechanism to get testing much better centralized so that we can... Yes, we, we, we started on that right away. Matter of fact, the, two, the first two locations we set up for testing 
We're in uh, West Tampa where we have a very high Hispanic, uh, Latino, Latina community. And then in East Tampa where we have a, a, a very large African-American and, and black community as well because we knew that, that this virus um, uh, impacted those particular communities. And so we have pushed the tests. We don't have a great deal of control on how quickly those results come back. As you know, those, those times are, are being reduced dramatically as the um, accuracy of the testing is improving. We, the antigen testing, we do have that available, but that is more in the, uh, the hospitals and they're having quick turnarounds with those quicker turnarounds. But um, in the, the locations that are run now uh, by the state, those tests are still two to three days on the, the return from those. And there isn't a focus statewide on contact tracing either. That's one area that I feel that we've, uh, we've I, I often say that the only accurate data that, that, that we have, the only thing that is consistent is the inconsistency. <laughs> You know, on the, the return of the test results, um, the, the counts of the deaths, all of that comes back in bundles, and you just don't know. Not that it's inaccurate, it's just the timeliness of it all. Dr. Kim, I wanted to ask the next question, uh, and that's about what are we doing to treat COVID-19 now that we didn't know to do when the epidemic began? And, and the related question is just about mortality rates. So, so mortality rates are lower, but they still seem to be higher here than they are in many other countries, including Canada. And, and why is that? Well, um, so in the beginning, we didn't really know anything. So we um, gave people a lot of antibiotics. We actually pretty much everyone, I, I practice at Tampa General and we were giving everyone hydroxychloroquine because that was what we had to offer. I think one of the things that we're really struck by is that COVID is very unpredictable and many of the things that we thought we knew don't necessarily apply to COVID. Um, that being said, we've learned a lot. So right now there are treatments that do help patients. So if you think about treatments, there's um, a first phase, which is a viral phase, which is more like the flu, classic colds, things like that, depending on the severity. And we have two treatments, um, um, the, that are in development at that phase. One is um, remdesivir, which we've had a lot of experience with, and that seems to work um, for people who are having some serious respiratory problems. And then probably one of the more promising um, um, agents is these monoclonal antibodies that are also directed at the virus and obviously got a lot of fame because um, President Trump received one of the versions of that. And that's something that we're actually actively studying at, um, out of um, Tampa General, and you know we're involved in those kinds of studies. This treatment is also completely experimental at this point. So remdesivir has got what's called the EUA, emergency use authorization. But even though these monoclonal antibodies look very promising, they are not approved, so they should be considered completely experimental. So those are the early phase, and then there are other treatments. What happens is there's the first phase, and then it progresses to an inflammatory phase. Many of us were nervous about treating inflammation because sometimes that can also suppress the immune system, but some very good studies have shown that corticosteroids, um, dexamethasone, and things like that help with the inflammatory phase and also have better outcomes. 
Um, and then there are various other things to treat the inflammation phase that have been a little bit more disappointing. So we do have treatments that look very promising. Um, and then the other thing is I think now we understand the disease better, so we're just better at managing it. So we know that people don't necessarily have to go on the ventilator as early as, as they might show signs of or that we might have done for other diseases. And you know, once we have a little bit more practice, our mortality rates are much, much better than early on or say in New York. Um, I'm not sure why our mortality rates would be different than in other countries, but it probably um, has to do with the overall incidence and other demographic features. Like, you know, we all know that older people, people with other comorbidities are more vulnerable. And so my guess is that mortality has to do with other pre-existing conditions or age. USF epidemiologist Edwin Michael followed up on Connie Kim's answer. And this is uh, with regard to why the U.S. is seeing um, the kinds of mortality rates that the other countries, and I'm speaking about the more developed countries, um, comparatively. Um, and one of the reasons, you know, I don't know who wants to speak to that, is, you know, the high levels of inequality in society, you know, and which is causing this comorbidity, um, you know, mortality link. And so I think one of the things, I mean, and this goes back to Spanish flu as well. It was social inequalities that really caused, uh, you know, the damage. And so, you know, we as a society will have to think going forward, you know, how do we address the social uh, inequalities in our communities? And I don't know what the mayor, you know, um, has in mind, you know, going forward, I know Tampa is, you know, it's not an island, you know, on its own, but, you know, this is a, nat a national um, debate that we need to have. And the second thing I would point out is, you know, I come from the UK, and, you know, with the National Health Service, you know, is this also speaking to how privatized care is practiced in this country, where you, you know, when, you know, when you have profits, you know, it's one of the... Um, objectives of providing care, you know, as that failed, you know, in this instance. And, and so for me, those are the two things that I keep thinking, you know, when I compare with the mortality rates here with the rest of the world, you know, more, more developed world. Yes, I agree that, um, you know, there, there are uh, systemic issues that have led to a disproportionate number of, if not infections, clearly deaths in, with COVID-19. You know, if you think about uh, you're told to quarantine, well, if you're living in a two-bedroom house with six individuals, where are you quarantining? And so here in Hillsborough County, uh, we, the, the county actually contracted with two hotels. So individuals could go there if they needed to quarantine and didn't have the ability. And then also if there were workers that had a, a higher uh, probability of being infected, were treating individuals, were working in a location where individuals with COVID-19 were, they could choose to stay at those locations as well. Now clearly that is not an answer to, to social injustice and other issues. And I, uh, it's wonderful that you brought that point up because it, you know, you talk about the, the uh, treatment that President Trump received and he said, 
everyone should receive this treatment. Well, in, in a just country, everyone would receive that treatment, but I don't think any of us think that we would, we would receive that treatment as well. So let's stick with treatments. And Dr. Tang, I wanted to ask you about vaccines. So will we get an effective vaccine? And if so, when will it become widely available? Well, that's a great question. Uh, I wish I wish I knew, um, but I think one of the things that I've been really impressed with is the response to this virus, and the pharmaceutical companies, as well as you know my colleagues who work on these kind of translational projects making vaccines. It has been a, it's been amazing to see how quickly some of these products have been making it into clinical trials. So I work on a virus that was discovered in like 1957. We don't have a vaccine for it. We may have a vaccine that could be deployed next year, which is an amazingly fast. And, you know, within a year and a half, we'll have a, a vaccine. Um, there are so many good candidates out there. I know we've we've heard in the press that there's been some pauses in the clinical trials, and these are sort of natural pauses when there are um, unexplained illnesses within the study population. When you have a study population of 30 to 60,000 people it's not unusual to find one or two unexplained illnesses. So I actually do, I'm pretty optimistic. I do think that by the end of this year, we'll find some sort of a vaccine that has at least some promise as a first line vaccine for um, the SARS-CoV-2. And as we go through, we have, you know, the next generations coming up. And I think, you know, certainly by next year, we should have something that can be deployed into the general public. Mm -hmm. I think the next question though is, who do we give it to? Right, you know, but you think about the, the vulnerable populations. Mayor Castor talked about the different, uh, um, the African Americans and the Latinos who, who seem to have a little bit uh, more severe disease. Um, we think about our, our elderly populations. We think about healthcare workers. Dr. Kim, who sees lots of COVID patients, right? You, you wanna make sure that they don't get infected. Um, so I think that's the next step is a kind of a, a, on a governmental level, we have to decide who we're gonna give the vaccine to and how do we distribute it properly. Do, do you have any idea, could you say, sort of when the average person in Tampa is likely to be able to get it if they want it? I would say based on, based on my opinion of who should get it first, I think if you're young and healthy, you're probably not getting this vaccine until 2022 maybe. But if you're in a high risk group, probably next year sometime. So ultimately, who, who decides that strategy for distributing the vaccines? You, you said, you know, the government, but are there, there must be groups working on this now, and, and what sorts of processes do they have for deciding? Yeah, that's, you know, that's a public policy question, I think, Dr. Kim has been on. Well, well I was just about to say, I'm sure you're Mayor Castor. I do know something about it, but I'm sure that Mayor Castor is working very hard behind the scenes because there actually has been some guidance, mm -hmm. which is, I think, not complete guidance, but enough that you're preparing, I'm pretty sure. Right, and when I was at the police department, we um, actually worked on distribution systems after 9-11, and so those plans have been developed nationwide, but again, the, the determination of who is going to get those, you know, if, if you look at a, a list of the elderly, of those individuals that come in close contact, individuals with comorbidities. So there has to be some type of a, a scaling on that list. 
and then the actual distribution system, we will have our emergency managers on a state uh, and local level that will participate in the distribution of, of, uh, of that vaccine when it becomes available. But uh, it is going to be a question of how that list is developed and um, that, you know, that is gonna be on a, on a federal level. And I can also say that having spent three decades in basically emergency management to one degree or another uh, with the Tampa Police Department and working closely with state officials and federal, I have never seen an incident or an issue that was so inadequately responded to on the national level, you know, to tell states to uh, basically just, you know, argue amongst yourselves or bid against each other for equipment, for personal protection, um, medical equipment. And I, I've just never seen that lack of coordination on the national level. And I, I personally believe that that set us back in the response uh, to COVID-19. Dr. Michael, I have a question for you about epidemiological models. Um, I'm just interested in what, what kinds of predictions do epidemiological models make if we just stay the course as we are now? And so we have social distancing, we have strong mask requirements, and we wait until a vaccine is available. And then the, the complementary part of that is once a vaccine becomes available, say 25 or 50% of people get that, but what do the epidemiological models say about then the trajectory of the pandemic? I was just going to jump in uh, just now because it is a complicated um, question, you know. Um, there is a timeline uh, as the vaccines come into production and then delivery. There's a timeline there. You know, you're not going to get immediate uh, delivery of the vaccines. That's going to be a rate which is going to occur. Um, so in the meanwhile, you know, the big questions, epidemiological questions is, first of all, what is the proportion of people that we need to think about uh, vaccinating until the vaccines hit full production? And so what proportion do we need to treat so that we can reopen safely in the meantime? And, and that's where the models come in, you know, uh, very handily. Um, so the proportion that you need to treat depends on many, many um, uh, factors. One is the rate of transmission in a particular locality. The higher the rate of transmission, the more the people that you have to uh, vaccinate. The second thing is heterogeneities. You know, who's transmitting? Not everybody transmits equally. I mean, the latest information that we have is that about 20% of the people, the super spreaders, you know, were, is giving rise to 80% of infections. Now, if we know who the super spreading groups are, then you just target that group. So we're coming back to who should we vaccinate? Is this the vulnerable people? Or is it going to be the people who are transmitting most? You know, so, and this is going to be a political uh, football. And I'm going to warn you, Mayor, you know, <laughs> this is no longer science. It's going to be a political football. You know, who's going to get uh, the vaccine? From the modeling perspective, you know, if you just look at the numbers, uh, and forget about lives, then, um, you know, it's the people who are transmitting most. If you want to reopen the economy, you know, safely. I have a question. How do you determine who a super spreader is? 
<laughs> That's a good question. Yeah. And um, there's some noise that it's, it's related to um, how much virus you actually have, but I don't think there's consensus on that. There are some people, though without much data, say, oh, well, those are the ones that are picked up on these less sensitive tests, so those point-of-care tests are good enough so that they're higher risk. Um, I think the safest thing to, to say is we don't really know. I mean, this is where we haven't done enough contact tracing and epidemiology to know who those people are. Um, I wish I did. <laughs> I mean, so the, this is why the models are saying that until you reach high capacity, you know, uh, vaccine uh, delivery and those kinds of things, you still have to keep social measures. And, and the other model is saying you have to keep it until end of March. And therefore, you can, you know, slowly uh, roll out the vaccines and still keep the public safe. Mm -hmm. So unfortunately, there's no easy answer. So this last 15 minutes of discussion is a, a sort of great setup for asking Mayor Castor my next question, which is um, what, what are the possibilities for increased restrictions in Tampa over the winter? And uh, you know, what, what do you envision? Well, we, you know, we're, we are taking it uh, as the science goes, and we have had great adherence to our mask order. Uh, we had great adherence to our safer at home uh, restrictions as well. We, we closed down quickly in our community and then reopened very thoughtfully based on the science, with the exception of the, the opening of the bars. So we will do what is necessary to uh, keep our community safe, but it's you know clearly hoping that we don't have to go past, uh, as the, the doctor said, those steps of wearing a mask, social distancing, ensuring that if, if you uh, have any of those, your elderly uh, comorbidities, that you are staying at home and that you are keeping yourself away from others. And uh, so we'll continue to uh, travel down that path and hopefully we will we can continue to recover economically and we aren't going to see uh, the incredible spike that we saw back in July uh, mm -hmm. we, we clearly are you know ratcheting up with some of the positive cases but um, we hope that that uh, it isn't a dramatic increase that we saw before and we can continue to recover you mentioned contact tracing earlier. Um, are there are there plans going forward for ramping up contact tracing over the winter? Or one of one not? of the issues with the contact tracing is really the 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 countries that have been successful with it have done it through technology through cell phones, and our country would never stand for that. You know, they feel that it's too invasive. Um, individuals feel that it's very invasive, and that uh, although you know the private Companies uh, monitor all of all of their uh, data much more so than the government would ever even dream of doing. Um, nobody wants to be uh, have the government follow them through their cell phones. We're going to take a quick break to bring you a message from our sponsors. The Zoological Lighting Institute funds the sciences of light and life for the arts, for animal welfare, and for wildlife conservation. Recognizing that natural light is a central aspect of animal health and ecological function, the Zoological Lighting Institute promotes understanding by including scientific and artistic perspectives in conversations about light. 
so that proper and sustainable approaches to care and development can be taken by communities around the globe. ZLI understands that natural light is a key element of wildlife habitat. Artificial light at night and other modifications to the luminous environment, such as glass and asphalt, have radical implications for the physiology, sensory ecology, and integrative biology of animals and their role within ecosystems. ZLI promotes scientific research to improve understanding as to what artificial changes mean for animals and the human communities that depend on them. Find out how you might support ZLI's work at zli.org by participating in, sponsoring, or learning through its programs today. So, Dr. Kim, um, let's talk a little bit more about the virus in terms of why it's so dangerous to some people and not to others. Do we have a handle on that yet? Not really. Um, it's clear that there is some predisposition to generalized inflammation. It's sort of, um, you know, you need to have your immune system rev up to get rid of the virus. And clearly there is some fraction of people who have an inappropriate inflammatory response. So their body is trying so hard to kill a virus that it sets up a response that is very bad for the body. And um, it's known that you know aging, diabetes, other conditions sort of give you an immune imbalance. Obesity is, is also viewed as a constant inflammatory state. So those are aspects that are clearly dysregulated. And so, you know, um, so it's only a fraction, a substantial fraction, but, but only a fraction of people who get severely, severely ill. And we don't understand that. Um, I think we do have um, a lot, some of a handle on it just because we've been managing people with you know, dysregulated immune systems because autoimmune disease and cancer and things like that. So there's a lot of scientific groundwork for a lot of people working on a lot of these things, but I think at this point we don't really know. And there's probably a, a bit of a genetic predisposition as well, but mm -hmm. those are things that people are working on actively, but we don't know. Yeah, there's some, there's some genetic studies on um, some of the inflammatory genes as well as some of the uh, blood typing genes. There seem to be a predisposition to more severe disease. Um, there, it's actually, I've seen now four different studies about the blood group antigens, and it seems to be coming to a pretty good consensus, at least in the genetic studies, that certain types of, uh, certain blood types are more susceptible to the severe disease than others. Do these effects have anything to do with what Dr. Michael mentioned a minute ago, the long hauling condition, or are these, as far as we, you know, different we don't things? We don't really know. There's actually a long history of blood group types linked to infection, and it's 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 um, you know it's a balanced selection. So for genetic type, in other words, um, a group um, is predisposes you to certain diseases, like um, it, it it predisposes you to blood clotting um, disorders. Um, it also predisposes you to malaria and things like that. Blood group O um, is predisposes you to bleeding from ulcers and things like that. Um, and so you could see, though, in a situation where blood group A, if you're going to get cut and injured and stuff like that, having a system where coagulation would be more likely, which is also linked to blood group A, would be good in a situation, but then in a situation of COVID, it would be bad. And then, so, so there are traits like that where in a certain situation, they're good in certain situation. That's bad. They're bad, but we we, we have an incomplete understanding of 
you know, exactly what's going on. But yes, I think the blood group um, is, does seem to be um, bearing out. And one of the things that accompanies the inflammation is a lot of excess clotting. So people will have blood clots in their lungs or in, in other major arteries or even strokes or heart attacks. And so, um, so that seems to be panning out, but I, I think people don't quite understand, you know, the, the real root of all of that, because it's only more of a tendency rather than something that's like, if you're blood group A, you know, you're gonna be a thousand times more likely or something like that, which I don't think the correlation is that strong yet. Mm -hmm. I mean, initially, I think there was a study that showed there was a link between blood, blood group type and susceptibility of African-Americans in particular. And, but that does not tally with what's going on in Africa as a whole. Because Africa, you have much less, you know, if the, you know, if the reporting is correct, uh, much less case fatality. So one of the theories coming up from India as well is showing that, um, I mean, this could be on something to do with, you know, cross immunity. Because they are exposed to a lot of other, you know, common uh, coronaviruses, you know, in daily life kind of thing. And therefore, they do have some pre-existing cross-immunity that will reduce the viral load. And that will protect them against um, cl clinical uh, outcomes. Uh, do you have any um, you know, insight into those kinds of things as well? I mean, the studies show that there's some cross-reactivity in some of the T-cell responses, but really not a lot of antibody cross-reactivity between the seasonal coronaviruses and the SARS-CoV-2. Um, but, you know, I mean, these, these are all studies that are done in developed countries, you know, in, in Western Europe, in the United States. So I think, you know, if you have to find a study that goes to Africa and actually mm -hmm. looks better at the surveillance of, of the coronaviruses there. Well, the reason I bring this up is, you know, the flu season is coming. Mm -hmm. um, and so if there's cross immunity, that's good news, you know, in a way. Um, on the other hand, I, I do, you know, there is also speculation that, you know, people are not going to travel from the north because of COVID, right? Shut down. So maybe the flu season this year well, the in the south. The, the southern hemisphere has seen a much milder flu season than they expected. So I think some of these mask mandates and the, the physical distancing, the things that we have in place for SARS-CoV-2 are also effective at blocking transmission of flu. So I think this might Benefit. Uh, even here in the U.S., you, you recall that this started at the tail end of flu season, and during March, March and April, we saw far less flu than we had seen relative to what the what the incidence had been earlier. So, and I, I, but getting back to your question, as far as what's happened in the developing world, there's this whole thing about in the developed world um, because we're so so much cleaner in certain ways. You don't have as much immune challenge, so this is why we have more autoimmune disease and other inflammatory diseases. Whereas people in the developing world, you know, um, if they survive childhood, they've been challenged with so many infectious pathogens that their rheostat is slightly set at a different spot. And so this is why you're exposed to certain things in Africa with all the other flora and food or whatever your body's reaction to it might be different than if you grew up here in the U.S., even though your genes would be the same. So can we come back just briefly to the, the long hauler phenomenon? Um, how common is it, and 
how clear is it to even ask about its commonness given the diversity of effects that these enduring things that, that seem to be around? I don't actually know. Actually, Dr. Kim might know better, but it's, it's you know, it's not uncommon to, to hear about these long haulers. We get, again, in, in the internal medicine COVID clinic, there's a lot of people that are calling in with issues. Um, it's not, but I don't think, you know, a lot of, it's not really prevalent. It's not the major thing that happens afterwards. A lot of people clear the infection and they're fine. Mm -hmm. But it's those people that do have problems. They tend to have problems for a lot longer. I mean, sometimes when we get flu infection, for example, we have cough for like three weeks afterwards. These people are having three months of disease after the, they clear the infection. Mm -hmm. and, and the distressing thing is it's not predictable. Obviously, if somebody had a little bit of emphysema and then they have worse respiratory complaints, that, that sort of would be a little predictable. Or someone who had a little bit of heart failure and they went through some, something devastating like COVID that they might be a little worse off. But it's, it seems to be unpredictable so that it is younger people. It is, you know, I, ca I can't predict who's going to get that. And there are some people who are like athletes who can't run anymore. Or, mm. And it's not just that they're deconditioned. They really just don't have the stamina that they had before. And um, I think that this is going to be, you know, um, you know a, a big problem that we're going to have to deal with. I think... The other thing that we're gonna have to, there's a lot of very subtle psychiatric and neurocognitive persistent effects as well. And of course that's hard to sort out because there's the disease and then also the huge psychological trauma that we've all had just because of the fear and the social distancing and all the consequences of having to completely change how, how we live our lives. Dr. Tang, I want to ask a, maybe an orthogonal question here about um, origins of SARS-CoV-2. So both Marty and I are evolutionary biologists. We're intensely interested in evolutionary origins. Um, and what, what's the current thinking about where SARS-CoV-2 came from? And, you know, is there some other species you can identify as the reservoir from which it jumped? Uh, and maybe you can address this ongoing issue of whether it was developed somewhere in a lab. Yeah, I've heard that that uh, hypothesis that it's developed in a lab. It's uh, if you were going to design a virus, you probably wouldn't design the virus this way. But um, I think from the data that has been starting since maybe April, um, um, Eddie Holmes in the University of Sydney came out with the first paper that showed that the genome of the SARS-CoV-2 is very similar to some of the the bat coronaviruses, and even more recently, they've isolated some bat coronaviruses that are more similar to the one that um, uh, Dr. Holmes found. So it's most likely coming from bats. This is not kind of a weird thing. There's a lot of viruses that come from bats. Um, we've seen the SARS coronavirus, the original SARS coronavirus, uh, we're pretty sure that came from a bat. Um, we think that Ebola viruses, these filoviruses that cause tremendous disease in, in Africa, are also coming from bat reservoirs. So there's something special about bats, I guess, that they harbor a lot of different viruses that seem to be coming out and, and can cause significant disease in humans. In, in terms of, um, you know, just envisioning the process of, of transferring from bats, so the where and the when and the how, what, what do we know about that? I don't think we have a good idea. There's, there's 
a couple of genetic changes in the, this virus that suggest that it had to jump into an intermediate host. And we've seen that with some of the other coronaviruses as well. The SARS, original SARS coronavirus seemed to have jumped into cats. Um, so there's a hypothesis that this virus jumped into a pangolin, which is actually a, an animal that is used in a tremendous amount of um, animal trade in, in, the, in the Far East. So it's, it probably came through an intermediate host. A lot of the, the changes are, are there. So um, it's, it's one of those things that there's so many different species of bats, it's almost impossible to identify the original species of bat. Mm -hmm. um, you can kind of identify maybe regions where the, the virus seems to be coming from. But um, yeah, there's, there's hundreds of species if not mm -hmm. thousands of species of bats. So mm -hmm. identifying the exact species and, and tracing sure. the exact path that it came out is going to be very difficult. So just from a broader perspective, um, given the severity of the, the COVID outbreak, do you, do you think this is going to force changes in the way people, in the way societies deal with animals and, and the animal trade? And uh, Yeah, well, you know, I would have thought 20 years ago when we started seeing avian influenza virus coming out in some of the wet markets. That changes should have already happened. That changes should have happened. When, in 2003, when SARS, the original SARS came out, changes should happen. I don't, I don't think that's going to happen. I think, you know, as we get more and more people on this planet, we have to have more and more space. We have to have more and more resources. So we're going to have people going clear-cutting in the Amazon, you know, trying to get farmland or, or mining. We're going to expose ourselves to a lot of these animals that haven't seen people before. And that also means that we're going to expose ourselves to some of these viruses that are persistently infecting the, the animals that are, are there. I mean, I can, you know, so, I mean, many people think that now we are getting into another phase, you know, in terms of epidemiology, you know, the transitions that we talk about. You know, we had the infectious um, disease, you know, era, so to speak, and then that moved into the chronic diseases because people think, oh, we've conquered infectious disease. But now we are coming into another phase, which is climate change, natural resource um, uh, um, change, or environmental change, and also the re-emerging diseases. So you're absolutely right. I mean, we need to sit back and think, you know, about food production practices, about, um, you know, how do we also, you know, do better in you know, animal husbandry? Uh, you know, ultimately this comes down to agricultural practice and, you know, I, I hate to say this here, you know, in how we, you know, who produces food and, and controls uh, food production, what kind of system, you know, the exploitative, you know, kind of system. If we exploit nature, you know, to the extent that we are doing right now, this is inevitable. And behind this, we have a bigger problem, and that is climate change. And I think that is beating down. You know, the pandemic is nothing compared to what climate change is going to come and do. So therefore, I think, you know, society as a whole have to sit back and think, uh, how are we managing our economies? You know, and, and I think time has come to begin to start looking at this very seriously. So that's a good segue to thinking about the future for this infection. Dr. Mike, I wanted to ask you, when will this go away? You alluded to the model alternatives that you've been working on, and one is would have maybe been the end of this year, and now it looks more like March. But what does that even mean? Yeah. Does it mean that it goes down to a very low level and becomes endemic, or that it's gone, gone? No, it's not, it's not going to go away. I mean, COVID is going to join um, flu. It's going to join influenza. You know, it's going to circulate globally. 
you know. Uh, and so it's, that's not ever going to go away, and that's especially the case if immunity is uh, not permanent. Um, and also, you know, birds will, you know, uh, new birds will uh, occur, and people are going to move around, so that will keep the system oscillating, you know, at a very low level because they have vaccines. And then the antivirals. Nobody is talking about antivirals because there's no money to be made. So people are focusing on developing the vaccines because the market is huge. And so, therefore, we just have to think about how we are dealing with uh, flu right now. We've got a combination of vaccines that we, you know, give the vaccines the most vulnerable. And then uh, if people do get flu, we have the antivirals. And that is how the future is going to look, at, look like, uh, even with COVID. That's not going to go away. And you mentioned births being part of it, just generating new susceptibles that have never seen it before. We don't know about what memory uh, individuals may inherit from their parents. Um, but assuming that that's not very much, uh, there will be some constant trickle of yeah. new, new susceptibles into mm -hmm. populations. Mm -hmm. But what do we think we know, or what's the current feelings about the chance for an individual, him or herself, to become reinfected? We're starting to hear a few cases of second infections in some individuals, and given the large number of infections we know to have happened around the world, it seems to be a very, very tiny drop in the bucket, but how much do we worry about that now? I mean, I think, you know, once the vaccines come, I've got no worries. Once the vaccines do come, you just get a boost, you know, you, you, you will have a booster system. So for me, it's just waiting until the first effective vaccines, you know, viable vaccines come into play, you know, and then this will be exactly, you know, we don't think about flu any, you know, as a major problem anymore, mm -hmm. right? I mean, it's part of our life, and that's how it's going to be. You know, with the vaccines and with the drugs, you know, uh, we will contain this, you know, uh, as part of normal life going forward. Good. So we wanted to save some time, the last 30 minutes of our event tonight, for you in the audience um, and have a chance for you to ask your questions. And what we did was to ask audience members at the time of registration to give us some questions about what you, you wanted to know. And what we tried to do was pick questions that were covering different territory than, than Art and I um, with the, the questions that we picked before the, before the event. So Art, I'm going to let you ask the first question. Great. The first question is from Jennifer Orsi, uh, and this one hits home because I myself am a, a college professor. Uh, in November, college students will be returning home. What's the safest way to avoid endangering other family members when they return home that doesn't involve keeping isolated for the first several weeks back? Anyone want to take that one? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, on the one hand, it, that's one of the reasons that testing is, is really important, available and rapid testing, so you can actually figure out if you're positive. The problem is, you know, you don't, if you've been exposed, the first couple of days, you're not going to test positive. Um, I don't have a good answer for this either, but, you know, I mean, you could do the things like masking and hand hygiene and things for the first few days. If you have a good test that you can get rapidly, then you can, uh, then you can know. Um, but really, I think the small gatherings, the family gatherings have been driving a lot of the infections recently, so it is going to be a risk. I mean, I mean, all I would say is that there is, there is a correlation, you know, with campus outbreaks 
and then the local in you know, uptake in cases, you know, with a lag of two weeks. So it is going to spread. And if students go back, as uh, Michael was saying, and if they're not tested and seem to be negative, that will be the safest way to send them back, is that they all do a, uh, you know, un, you know, take a test, and then uh, if they are found to be, you know, like two or three, you know, conse consecutive tests, they're found to be negative, then they can go back safely. That would be the safest way to send students back. So the next question is from Stephanie Hogue. Um, Michael, I think this one's for you. What strategies can we use to ensure high compliance with vaccination once the vaccine is approved by the FDA and available? I think we have to have, the first thing is we have to have confidence in the vaccine. And I think this is one of the things that the, the, the drug companies are really trying to stress by being extremely transparent about their clinical trials, how they're being run, so that not just the data safety monitoring board is looking at it, but anybody can look at their plans. Um, that's the first thing. The other thing, then it has to be availability, right? So, and the problem is, you know, we hear about numbers like, oh, you can get 100 million doses of this vaccine by X date. 100 million doses of a two-dose vaccine is 50 million people, which is, what, 16% of this country? Mm -hmm. So it has to be available. So they have to rapidly ramp up production. And then, you know, there's really good, this is not going to be a vaccine that's seen lots of years of trialing. So you're just going to, there's a little bit of risk at the end, so you're just going to have to, you're going to have to accept that the disease is, is worse than that small amount of risk that may, may come. Can you speak a bit more to that? Because, I mean, we know that uh, um, there's quite a large group within the country that have issues with vaccinations right. in general. I mean, you, you sort of say that this not usually, not getting as much testing as a typical vaccine would because of the timeline yeah. relative to the influence of the disease itself. I mean, how, what is the fairest way to think about the difference? It's, it's a pretty big distinction, right? Right. I mean, I, I think the, the one way that the drug companies are trying to get through it is by having these very, very large trials. So 30,000, 60,000 people in the trial. If you have a large number like that, any small signal you'll be able to see pretty quickly. Um, it's, it's, it's a trade-off, right? It's, you, want, you can go fast, or you can go really, really, really safe. Um, what they're trying to do is to thread that needle where you can actually see pretty safe with 60,000 events, and you should be able to see something. But you're also trying to say, I want this vaccine now, right? I want this vaccine faster than any vaccine that's ever been made, because this is an emergency. This is an emergency pandemic. We have to, we have to do something now. So, you know, I mean, I, I would have confidence, you know, if the phase three trials show efficacy, um, I've seen their plans, they look pretty good. Um, you know, I'm hopeful that they'll see the right signal. And once it comes out, I think I'd take the vaccine. It's good to hear. And one of the things too is that uh, one of the statistics I heard the other day is that Americans receive their information and their news from social media as compared to the Washington Post, the New York Times, CNN, Fox, MSNBC, and all other outlets combined. And so to your point, the confidence, the American confidence in the vaccine, I, I personally believe is gonna be critical, regardless of what the science says. And that's why we need to be also on those, on social media and promoting, you know, if, if we have a safe, effective vaccine, 
You can't just you know, say, oh, it's safe and come get it. You actually have to have you know, proactive steps in order to get people to go out there and, and be confident that the vaccine is going to protect them against the disease. Mm -hmm. Mayor Castor's comment is a great uh, segue to the uh, question from Chikaf Bakur. How can we best counteract misinformation about the pandemic, especially when it comes from influential people, including our leaders? I think we know who gets that one. <laughs> Again, just, just the facts. You know, individuals have to have confidence that you are relying on science and you're relying on the facts. And when you don't know the correct answer, then you have to communicate that. That's been communicated here. You know, and who, why does someone have a, a very uh, critical reaction to this virus while others don't even know that they, they have it. You know, there are a lot, there are just so many elements of this virus that are completely unknown and you just have to be forthcoming and you have to be consistent with your communication and share the information <coughs> as soon as you get it, as soon as it's updated and just build that confidence and that trust with whoever your audience is. That's, that's what I try to do every day with our community. Do you think there's any way to convince people to get less of their news and input from social media and get it via other, other channels, which may or may not be more reliable, but ideally more reliable channels? I don't know. I, I, I don't know the answer to that. Again, that's something that I try to do every single day. That's what I do with my children is ensure that that they're looking at the facts and the data and the science and not focusing on social media. I'm not sure if that train is too far down that track for us to pull it back, but um, there's just so much division in our country. I'm 60 years old. I was born and raised here in Tampa, and I have never seen the division that we have currently, and it, it really is whatever... Uh, source you derive your information. A matter of fact, I was in a presentation a couple of years ago with uh, Dr. Susan McManus from USF, and she said that her generation, my generation, were the last to get their information objectively from the nightly news. That if, you know, you have a certain viewpoint, then that's the, the focus that you have that just underscores and supports what, what you already believe. And there's a loss of the objectivity or the willingness to listen to all sides of, a, of an issue or a viewpoint. Yeah, and I think there's a loss of sort of common experience, right? We're not all listening and watching the same things. And so we live in alternative universes. So next question is from Ryan DeWitt. And Ryan asks, if we can get COVID twice, how do we know a vaccine will work? and the area that we haven't exactly touched yet, what does it even mean to say that a vaccine works? So for a vaccine to work, there's specific uh, metrics that you have to look at. You look at immune responses, and then what they're going to see in these large trials is a decrease in the incidence of COVID for the people who didn't get, who got the placebo versus the people that got the vaccine. So and that's the efficacy part. Um, there are some, Sporadic cases now being reported of reinfections. Um, I think the, the, the one in the United States, a young man from Nevada, 
mm-hmm. um, got reinfected and his disease was worse. Um, we don't have a really good idea of what his immune response was to his first infection, but based on his immune response to the second infection, it looks like he probably didn't develop an immune response to the first infection. Um, so it's possible that you don't develop your immune response. And this is not unusual because we're all heterogeneous in terms of our immune responses. Um, and this is part of the point of the genetic studies. We, we're all a little bit different. So we're gonna see people that get reinfected, but the, the kind of incidence of reinfection is, is really low. And if it is higher, a lot of those are asymptomatic and don't even know it. So this is, this is probably not gonna be a, a huge worry about um, getting immunity. How you, do you think a cocktail of vaccines can overcome this kind of problems? Or, or as you talked about earlier, a boost of vaccine. question from Robert Tapales, uh, which is, why does COVID-19 affect black and brown communities more so than others? And I, I know we talked about this early on uh, in our session about an hour ago, but this, this strikes me as so important that we ought to, you know, talk about it again here. I think it's so. multifactorial. Um, I think um, there's some, certainly some social factors as far as people living in housing situations where it's harder for them to isolate. Um, Many of the people are in economic situations where where they work or how they get to work is a situation where they can't, you know, they have to take public transportation or they're in a situation where they either can't wear a mask or, you know, they are exposed, you know, they're vulnerable. I think um, there's also some other predispositions just because there's a higher incidence of diabetes, high blood pressure, obesity in in some of these groups. Um, So so there's some some underlying health, you know, um, social determinants of health that are, you know, medical conditions as well. Um, So it's, it's pretty complicated. And then it's possible also that um, there are some, you know, the environmental things plus some genetic traits as far as, you know, tendencies to reactions to different types of infectious agents is a little bit different depending on what genetic background you're, you're from as well. So it's, it's probably multifactorial. I mean, all I will say is that, you know, there's, there are studies which looked at, you know, the different multivariate factors, and the most important ones are always the social determinants. And I think, you know, and that's where most of the inequalities lie, why you have black and brown communities more affected. I mean, you know, when the lockdowns occurred, I think all of us noticed, right? When you look at essential workers, who are they? You know, and when you go to supermarkets and you, when you, when you see the cleaners and all the rest of it, I mean, they work in those dangerous jobs, you know, and they get the worst pay, you know, which is interesting. You know, when you look at uh, those kinds of issues. Yeah, we had uh, in the very beginning um, of right as we put the safer at home order in place, uh, we had a, a company that made a presentation to the emergency policy group, and they showed um, specific paths of travel prior to COVID-19 in the safer at home order 
and um, these, you know, through the, the publicly uh, derived information from cell phones. And then once the Safer at Home went in, the number of those trips declined dramatically in just about all of the areas, geographic areas of the county, with the exception of some of the lower income neighborhoods. So you had individuals that had to go to work. They didn't have a choice of, of quarantining or, or staying safe at home. And then even the, the term safer at home, you know, if you're living in a very small home with a number of individuals, uh, you know, you, you, you don't have the ability to, to quarantine and, and clearly you've increased that uh, potential for spreading the virus. And then you add into those the social issues that have been talked about, food deserts, um, comorbidities that, that have been linked directly to uh, social uh, uh, programs, social injustice in particular neighborhoods. So there's a number of factors that go into that that we are all very conscious about and have really uh, taken steps to try to address those in a preventive fashion. And that's one of the reasons, clearly not um, the, the entire answer to why we have had less of that disproportionate impact in our community. Providing the testing sites in some of the low-income neighborhoods, providing mobile testing, um, providing those locations where people could go and quarantine, uh, handing out, we handed out 400,000 masks in the city of Tampa, predominantly making those available in the lower income neighborhoods as well. So it, it, uh, it is an issue that we were very cognizant of and, and addressed uh, to the best of our ability. So our next question is from Olivia Payne, and Olivia is asking, what are your recommendations this holiday season? for travel in particular? Uh, I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> uh, I'm having Thanksgiving with my family, my immediate family, and not doing any big gatherings or anything. So trying to, you know, because again, like I said, I think some of these smaller gatherings are now starting to drive our, our infections. And so you just try to be safe and avoid a lot of contact with people. Yeah, I, I've had over 20 years of a friend's giving, you know, with my college group and close friends, and we're not having it this year. And, um, and this is actually in New York. So I think, you know, what happens also is, you know, these family gatherings where it's a family, so you can't tell them how to behave without creating other issues. And so, you know, you're putting yourself at risk. And, you know, having been a, a doctor, you know, at Tampa General, we have situations where a young person had to go to work or had a friend or something like that and then brought an infection into the family. The young person wasn't necessarily sick, but gave it to the family. And then there was someone who was medically vulnerable who did very badly and landed in the ICU or died. So I think, you know, you're taking that risk and it's very, very difficult. But yeah, I, don't, I think it all comes down to what your risk tolerance is and what you have to do. And, you know, as we discussed, there's, you know, some people have to go to work. So then they don't really have a choice. But, you know, for other things, it is optional and you have to think very carefully about the consequences of taking that chance. 
and at the risk of sounding like a mom here, uh, <laughs> with, with the risk tolerance, you can't just consider yourself. Mm. My sons are 21 years old, and you know that's the message that we try to get across, that you may, not, you may be asymptomatic, young, strong, healthy, but if you brought that home to a, a grandparent, and as in that case, someone died, imagine that responsibility. So you have to think outside yourself, especially for the young people, and think about others that you may be putting at risk through your actions. I've not gone home since uh, February. I'm going to go home, you know, <laughs> in, in December. But, you know, more seriously, I mean, this is, this is going to last until, you know, and more or less, we'll say, until end of, uh, end of March. So this is a short you know, time period that we somehow have to hunker, you know, hunker down and, um, and then just um, you know, go through you know, whatever um, you know, dislocations that we have to suffer, I guess. So um, last question. What else would you like to say? What else? Have we not gotten to what else do you think is important to communicate? Anyone question. and everyone is welcome. Yeah, I have one question for the mayor. How do you see the future uh, of cities, you know, given the pandemic, you know, urban design and those kinds of other things? That's a, a great question and very interesting. Uh, you know, a lot of people say this is the new normal. Working from home is the new normal. But I can tell you that we have office space that is, is under construction all over our community and is being rented and leased as it's being built. So I believe that we have, you know, the pendulum may have swung from the, the way we operated prior to, as I like to say, before the locusts came, uh, before COVID-19, and it, the pendulum swung to the, the uh, polar opposite and that it will settle towards the middle somewhere. I believe that we, and, and I like to see the positive in every situation as well. And I personally feel that COVID-19 has caused us all to slow down and hopefully recognize what's important in life and, uh, and, and ensure that we're taking advantage of, of those things that are important. My older sister, uh, w once we started the Safer at Home, I was talking to her on the phone and she said, I watched a bird take a bath in the backyard today. And she goes, I didn't even know we had a bird bath. So, <laughs> you know, to be able to, to slow down, I think also that we all take that personal uh, responsibility, understand that level of responsibility and the simple steps to reduce the transmission of this virus Masks work, the vast majority of people can wear them, social distancing and taking those, those simple precautions will save lives and will allow us to recover much, much more quickly. I think the one thing that I've seen in my little community of virology, people working on vaccines, is that everybody has basically dropped what they were doing on their projects and started working on this and trying to get together to, to make something work. And I think that's what we all need to do. I mean, I think we're all in this together. We're all, those of us who haven't been infected, we're susceptible and we need to protect each other. It's not about 
you know, oh, well, I feel I'm okay, so I don't care about you. Everybody here, you know, and this goes back to, you know, women, Mayor Castor and her, her mom moment. It really is. You have to make sure that you don't think just about yourself. Think about us as a community, because we are a community. And I have to say, that's actually one of the things I am proud about. There's a lot of things that are, like, depressing about all of this. But, you know, for me, being in the hospital and working with everybody, and obviously the mayor has been an incredible partner with those of us who are physicians. You know, you've worked very closely with the Department of Health, who worked very closely with us. And, you know, people actually have shown their best selves um, as far as the people working on combating this, scientists, you know, people who are in the hospital, people who are in public, you know, service and things like that. And I think that part is actually really, really positive. And, you know, people were in their own worlds. And I think it's been really remarkable, all these people that I'm working with that I didn't even know who they were a few months ago. So I think, I think that part has, is actually caused to be quite optimistic, even though there's a lot to be distressed about. Thanks for listening to this episode of Big Biology. We want to give a special thanks to Bush Gardens for providing a COVID-safe venue and the University of South Florida for helping us organize the event. We know you'd love the podcast, so please visit our Patreon page, patreon.com bigbio, and become a patron by making a recurring donation. You can also make a one-time contribution at bigbiology.org. You can also help us by posting about this episode on social media. Tag us on your Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook feeds, or give us a review on Apple Podcasts. On the next episode of Big Biology, we talk with Kevin Gaston, an ecologist who studies the impacts of light pollution on wildlife. He's documented the spread of light pollution across the world, including into some of our most pristine natural environments. Artificial lighting and the impacts of artificial lighting are, are not about oddities. They're not about, I mean, of course, they have implications for all sorts of peculiar bits of biology. But actually, we, we are, are living in, in a world which is very, very strongly structured now in most places by artificial lighting. Thanks to Matt Blois for producing the episode. Big Bio interns Ajinkia Dahake, Dana Baxter, Jordan Greer, and Ruth Dimry manage our social media accounts and help us produce the show. And as always, Steve Lane manages the website. Thanks to the College of Public Health at the University of South Florida, the College of Humanities and Sciences at the University of Montana, and the National Science Foundation for support. And finally, a last round of thank yous to the people who made this live event possible. Navar Campbell, Jesse Adair, and Kara Martell. Also Dean Dada-Peterson, Drs. Tom Unash and John Adams, Natalie Preston Washington, and Meredith Kernbach at the University of South Florida. Music on the episode is from Potting the Bear.